and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast. I'm Chris Ratcliffe and I'm with Martin Spain and in this show we discuss cars in films and generally geek out about all things automotive in movies, TV and online. In this episode it's filling holes in our viewing history with I Have Never Seen. But first, Martin, do you want to just catch up with some uh, some feedback from the last episode? Yeah, we uh, got down a little tangent last episode, wondering about how Michael Fassbender is going to compete at Le Mans in the Road to Le Mans series we've been watching on YouTube. Um, we got a little lost in what car he was driving and whether or not he's going to end up driving in some pokey support race that happens to be at Le Mans and possibly in June, but is nothing to do with the 24 hours of Le Mans. Uh, but listener and friend of the show, Jack Wood, sent us a message on Twitter to let us know that according to Porsche Life magazine the magazine i think it's an email um michael fassbender has a different plan of wanting to compete at the 24 hours of le mans so we have confirmation from porsche that he's aiming to be at the real 24 hours of le mans i presume in 2020 i couldn't dig up any more info on this but it does mean that he's actually going to be on the grid of the big race and that's pretty exciting very and it's a big big challenge because even for a gentleman driver le mans the full 24 hours is no small feat, so good uh, good luck to Michael Fassbender. should mention that the series that we've been following has actually wrapped up its first season. Seasons in YouTube are a weird thing, but apparently they've finished their first season, which what they mean is the uh, Porsche Sports Cup Germany that he's been competing in in 2019 has finished. So the last episode of the show screened after we put out episode 9, um, and... It then goes on to say, you know, follow his adventures in 2020. And I think I got an email through or went to the Porsche website and you can sign up to a mailing list to be alerted when they send out new episodes for the new series, which presumably is him racing in the same thing again to go to Le Mans. Or maybe he's stepping up a gear. We don't know. They've given us no information. But if he's going to be at the 24 hours of Le Mans, he's going to need to do some longer endurance races, which to me says ELMS. It has to be, I think, it has to be E-L-M-S. Easy for you to say. (laughs) Speaking of Le Mans, since our last episode, there has been the release of, depending on which side of the Atlantic you're on, either Ford versus Ferrari or Le Mans 66. I don't know what this Le Mans 66 movie is of which you speak. I keep seeing adverts (laughs) for it on tube and I know it's in the cinema, but I'm going to go and see Ford versus Ferrari when I get a second and I'm not ill. Well... I think Ford versus Ferrari is actually a bit of a misnomer. So, for those who aren't aware, and if you listen to this podcast and you're not aware, I'd be very surprised. This is the f- semi-fictionalised account of Ford taking on Ferrari at Le Mans, the gestation of the Ford GT, Carroll Shelby's involvement, and basically wanting to go to Ferrari, uh, wanting to go to Ferrari, wanting to go to Le Mans, and beat Enzo Ferrari at his kind of home race in the endurance world it stars matt damon as carol shelby it stars christian bale as a driver called ken miles and a lot of other very very good character actors who you've probably never heard it's of. it's got the you. punisher in it it's got the punisher yeah it's got the punisher in it I, I know not of this Punisher. Uh, you need to you watch speak. The Punisher on Netflix uh, while right. you still can, but yes, sorry. <laughs> um, so I, what we're going to do, we're not going to do a full review now because we've got films later on, but I will give a kind of a bit of a, a, a wrap-up of my thoughts. And spoiler free. Spoiler free, please. Spoiler free. I haven't seen much, this yet. Much like the GT40 itself, it will be spoiler free. Oh, very good. Oh, 
So the film itself is not really Ford versus Ferrari. That is the ultimate battle. But the whole film really is about Ford, about internal fights within Ford. Ford versus Shelby is one of the names that I have heard, which would be a lot, lot better name because it is all about from 1964, I think, through to 1967. And it features almost nothing about Ferrari. There is no mention of the cars, what they were doing. They appear in the race. The driver has some Italian name, which they never even repeat. It's all about which team is going to run the GT40s. When they get to Le Mans, who's going to be driving? Political fights to see who's going to be in, who gets left behind, and so on. A few things that struck me. Number one, the cinematography is brilliant. I've, I've heard reports that said that none of this was filmed at Le Mans, which I can kind of believe, and some of it does look a little bit sped up. But there is a vintage quality to a lot of the cinematography, particularly the in-car stuff. It has a very longer lens, almost um, that kind of sunset hour feel to it it's very traditional it it would fit right into a grand prix or the steve mcqueen film it feels very much like that they sometimes can play with it a bit depending what the scene is but it's very very well constructed in that sense the performances are great matt damon playing a form of carol shelby which apparently isn't entirely true to life but is a quite a stoic, quietly spoken Texan versus Christian Bale's Ken Miles. <laughs> apparently, well, if you we want to get pedantic and hey, it's the Auto Movie Podcast, he's from Sutton Coalfield, which Sutton is Coalfield. Kind of, it's Sutton Coalfield. That's a really nice which, place to come from. <laughs> For those who aren't intimately familiar with the uh, small towns and villages of uh, England. It's, it's specifically Birmingham. Specifically Birmingham. Well, Sutton Coalfield is kind of... It's, it's a bit of Birmingham, a yeah. bit of East Midlands, a bit of West Midlands. Uh-huh. Sutton Coalfield, it's this weird accent which he, he absolutely plays up to. The character itself reminds me a lot of the character he played in The Fighter, which I think he may have got uh, nominations for. While Matt Damon's performance is quite quiet and quite reserved and quite stoic... Christian Bell is much more lugubrious, he's much more gangly, he's much more a live wire. He's kind of the energy in the partnership. And the two of them play off really, really well against each other. Um, After I saw it, you said to me you should watch uh, The 24-Hour War, I think it's called. Yes. Which is on Netflix, it's on iTunes, all those sorts of things. And it's a documentary done by, amongst other people, Adam Carolla. Yeah. Well-known US radio host, car collector and uh, Toyota aficionado, which is a lot more... It is. I mean, it is a proper documentary. And you hear people talking for real. And Carol Shelby kind of sounds that laconic Texan. Ken Miles sounded nothing like oh, Christy Bale's performance. Does that mean my ridiculous Midlands stroke brummy piss take accent isn't accurate? Not at all. Ken Miles was actually a lot more of that. Um, it was. It reminded me a lot of the sort of the, the young Frank Williams. It was that kind of working class but slightly received pronunciation. You know, oh yes, we've done very well out there today with all the guys pulled together and we've had a really, really good race. Did he also appear in black and white and walk slightly too fast? 
because he sounds like he's from the 1930s in that particular accent. But I think that's what it was, though. I don't know. I don't know his background well, but it's it's a very very different character. But for the film, it absolutely works. I went in knowing nothing about the story. I knew about the discussions between Ford buying Ferrari. I knew that the uh, GT40 was kind of the Ford's revenge on Ferrari for not selling. But I didn't know anything else. And frankly, that is the best way to go in. There are apparently a litany of liberties taken with one thing and another, which if you know the story in detail, you will go, oh, that doesn't quite right. Oh, that's not quite right. But it doesn't matter. I think it works really, really well as a character piece. And it really is a character study between Carol Shelby and the pressure he's under, Ken Miles and the pressure that he's under, the story about um, Ford wanting a photo finish at Le Mans in 66 and how that affected Ken is all absolutely true. And it's really kind of... It really has a great climax because Le Mans isn't the end of the story. There's a, there's a bit more, and that's really the, the kind of the emotional core of the film because that's that's the big payoff. The cars and the racing scenes are are brilliant. Ford obviously put a lot of their um, their museum pieces onto planes and boats, I'm sure, and shipped them left, right and centre. And it's beautiful. The sound is amazing. It's worth going and seeing in that big screen environment just for the sound as much as anything. All of those V8s crank right up. I think it, it, it's really something that anybody can go and watch. I think it works brilliantly in, in that capacity. I think if you are a true petrol head and you kind of come away going, I wonder if that was real. I wonder if that was real. There is now a growing wealth of material that will tell you exactly what is and isn't true. But just as a film, it's really enjoyable. It's really fun. And of all the reviews that I've read after the fact, ignoring the fairly appalling one that was in Autosport, Andrew Frankel wrote a great piece for Motorsport, I think it was, and we'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, I've read that one. It's a really good one. Yeah. And he made he made an excellent point, which I will I will still hear, but with absolute attribution to uh, Mr. Frankel, saying that Ken Miles was the greatest driver that nobody had ever heard of. And now this will absolutely seal his name with the kind of reverence that it actually deserves so for that alone i think this film is great i think if you want to know more the 24-hour war is is actually a really good companion piece but it's a lot drier it's a lot more even in terms of this is where Enzo Ferrari came from. It starts even back there, you know. This was Henry Ford and the Model T, and it kind of builds up to 64, 65, 66, and then actually jumps forward to, I think the release was timed for when the Ford GT was out at Le Mans trying to catch up again. So It's good, yeah. I The, the best thing I can say is, if you like this story... If you feel like watching a long documentary that's very accurate, but like Chris says, very dry, Mm. 24-hour war is it. But actually, the book I read before this that introduced me to Ken Miles is a book called Go Like Hell, which is, uh, I think, a direct quote from one of the people involved in the Le Mans attempt. Uh, It's written by an author called A.J. Bam, with an M, funny spelling. Uh, We put a link in the show notes to it, but it is an excellent read. It's a proper page turner, made all the better because it's a true story. That that feels like the book that maybe they should have adapted if you wanted a a, a rollicking 
action movie tale. And from what I hear, this isn't really all action. There's great racing stuff in it, but that's not the entire mm. movie. I, I There's a lot of character. There is a lot of things about Ken's home life. There's a lot of Ford boardroom proper, you know, men in black suits and white shirts and madmen and drinking scotch. All of that stuff is in there. And the racing is very much just one part of a much, much bigger character drama. I should say, if you are an aficionado of the every time somebody shifts down a gear or goes full throttle like they haven't been already drinking game... Get an ambulance on standby because there is <laughs> You're gonna be a lot. <laughs> it, it's the only, to be fair, it's the only cliche that they absolutely overuse. But the number of shots of throttles hitting stops yes. and gear <laughs> See, changes, the, you're like, oh. It's the, the moment Hollywood produces a film where that doesn't happen, <laughs> you know, is the moment we call this podcast done. Because, you know, uh, not to be a spoiler, but I will be talking about a movie where that happens uh, that was made in the early 70s. Things have not got better since then, clearly. (laughs) So that was Ford versus Ferrari or Le Mans 66, depending on which market you're in and what your ideological view is. However... We've also had other big news since our last episode. Martin, talk to us about semen. (laughs) Well, Chris, (laughs) (laughs) the Grand Tour put out a trailer for their new special, one of, I think, three or four they're going to be doing across the next of the the, uh, year. So last season of Grand Tour, Clarkson very emotionally announced that they would be finishing the kind of standard Top Gear Stroke Grand Tour format of three people in a location and then some VT clips and some interviews and some more VT clips and stuff in favour of a series of specials because those seem to be the things that everyone loves the most. I'm not on that bandwagon. I like some of the, the more considered film pieces they've they've done, probably more than the specials, but lots of people seem to love the specials and they've gone down that route. And this is the first of them. It is the Grand Tour but with boats, not cars. And I think you texted me or tweeted out something in the effect that said this could be a Top Gear Vietnam special, but Grand Tour with boats in... Where are they? Remind me where they it, are? It's, it's certainly a bit of it is the Mekong Delta. <laughs> That's right, yes. <laughs> Honestly, you watch the trailer and you're giggling because... <laughs> semen. Um, <laughs> but there do appear to be some really genuine moments in there. Hammond drops an F-bomb about how he doesn't like boats that sounds absolutely <laughs> true. It sounds like a man at the end of his tether. And there is nothing funnier than watching them be stuck into situations where they're annoyed and cross at one another, doing something that they don't want to do in vehicles that don't want to work <laughs> when they don't know where they are. And it sounds like this is going to be an hour-long special of that. So I'm fully on board for this. I think there's going to be some extremely childish jokes, but there always is with those three. Check the trailer out. I think you can see the trailer on YouTube. Amazon have been um, promoting it quite heavily now on the Grand Tour Mm. Twitter channel and on their Facebook feed. I'm looking forward to this. It's out on December the 13th, which I presume is a Friday? Friday the 13th? Yeah, Maybe. Sounds about right. um, and I will be watching it very shortly after it is released and we will have our childish, giggly thoughts on it probably in the next pod. Definitely. I should point out to listeners who don't know us, which is probably Most a handful of, of issues. That, <laughs> well, or um, not. Maybe everybody who watches this is just the people we've told about it. Watches uh, this, probably. To this. So Martin and I, we do just text each other 
random clips from from Top Gear, basically left, right, and center. And Martin texted me apropos of absolutely nothing. It's one of those watches that for people that play golf and do business. It's me spelling the way Clarkson says business. This is because every now and then I will get the urge to watch one of the Top Gear things and it will be full of quotes that I know I can text to Chris and he will immediately (laughs) laugh and throw another one back at me. Um, That one is from one of the latter. There was a last series of Top Gear that the Three Amigos did, wasn't it? um, It's the one where they do the the brightling... um, the, the watch the, the, where you where you pull the thingy out and it fetches mountain rescue. Only there's no mountain rescue. It's just Clarkson and May with massive May. trucks dawdling and about Hammond. while Hammond gets increasingly irate. And I think <laughs> the reason why that ties in with this, this is very tangential and self-indulgent, but why not? It's our podcast. Um, the reason why I think that ties in with the Grand Tour is because I happened to download this episode off of iTunes. When they screened it on the BBC, they bleeped all the swear words. When I downloaded it off iTunes, they did not. It is full of swearing, like proper (laughs) F-bombs and C-bombs and all sorts of foul language from Hammond, who is getting increasingly annoyed at the fact that he's stuck up a mountain somewhere while Clarkson and May just bumble around in V8 American trucks. Um, Which never gets less funny. (laughs) And the joy of it is, his annoyance is real. Absolutely 100% real. As is James May's annoyance when Clarkson turns on the huge light. And I think that this new, (laughs) the Grand Tour special because they're not doing so many of them you know i think they probably have a chance to get out of one another's hair a bit and so when they do come back they're on prime annoying one another kind of form (laughs) and i have a feeling that this is going to be more of the same and those are the moments i find are really genuine it's why i like Mm. the vietnam special a lot more than i think lots of other people like it because it puts them out of their comfort zone. They're comfortable in cars. doesn't matter how ratty they are, they're comfortable in cars. But you put them on shoddy motorcycles, especially Clarkson, and, <laughs> you know, all hell breaks loose. And some of the best Top Gear stuff has been them trying to sail things that are not meant to be sailed, like cars. Uh, so I have high hopes for this. Definitely. And from one trailer to another, at the time of recording, the trailer for the trailer for the new Bond film has come out and I, is it the trailer of the trailer? Or it's is the teaser. The trailer, the trailer the comes teaser? out on Wednesday. So this is the teaser for the new James Bond movie, No Time to Die. I thought this was the trailer for the teaser trailer and then the full trailer was going to come closer to release. It's quite possible. Well, this, is, yeah, this is just standard. You know, this is a, what is it, 40 second, if that? It's just if a bunch that. of like little cool shots strung together with absolutely nothing in the way of giveaways of plot or baddies or anything. It's just, here's Bond in a suit, here's Bond in a car, here's Bond jumping a motorcycle, here's that tedious old Aston Martin with guns in the lights. But, and also, I will say, as much as some people complain about the Aston Martin styling department, there is a vantage in there. And you know that's a vantage, even though it's on screen for probably less than a second. We're talking that about the new vantage here. The new vantage. I really like the new vantage. I really, really do. And not just because I watched um, Alex and Martin Brundle race one at the VLN, which we'll come on to towards the end of the show. <laughs> but I really like the new vantage. And I feel I was quite annoyed, as you could tell by me calling it tedious, to see the old DB5 in there yet again, even though it's a rickety old shed. <laughs> Bond should not be driving around in that shit heap. 
Oh, come on. He drove a Mondeo in um, Casino Royale. And then got one of those and went, you know what? What I need is a car that won't start and runs on leaded <laughs> petrol, which you can't buy, and has Vietnamese suspension. <laughs> I have no time for the DB5, as you may be able to tell. I'm not I, a I, sentimental person. I did not have the little toy that shot a man out of the roof and put the little bullet shield <laughs> up at the back. My friend had that toy. I did not have that toy. I've harboured a bitterness to the DB5 ever since. So, as far as I'm concerned, bring on the new Vantage. I really like it. Make it make dirty V8 noises. I really like that. What's your best Bond car? Go. Oh, now... uh car it's got to be the vanquish but the problem is the vanquish appeared in probably the worst bond film of all time the one with madonna in it the green van uh, vanquish yeah, with look, the, the, the vanquish is um, a out the gorgeous grill. looking car okay forget that it had stupid rockets and stuff <laughs> um the, as a car as a thing the vanquish is gorgeous and sounds amazing big fat v12 as a movie car with rockets in it, no, it's just stupid. Um, if you're going with that, then it would have to be the one that Timothy Dalton drove, which was Advantage again, but back in the day, in the early 90s, in mm. um, whichever Dalton's first movie was, where he goes on the, the, the lake and it's got skis and lasers and hubcaps and stuff. Love that one. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the 7 Series from Goldeneye. I think it was Goldeneye. No, when the BMW 7 Series was in the next one, um, Tomorrow Never Dies. Yes. And the Z3 was in that as well. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> we digressed, as we do. Let's get into the meat of this week. So the theme for this show is I Have Never, because there are a tranche of films where if you haven't seen them, somebody online or in person in the pub will go, oh my God, I can't believe you've never seen. And I have sort of seen the film that I'm going to discuss um, but I fell asleep which is Ronan <laughs> it's a true story he had too much whiskey and steak and fell asleep while we were watching Ronan a few years back again hi to our friend of the show Jack um, thank really glad I didn't spill whiskey on your carpet anyway so Ronan the 1998 film starring Robert De Niro uh, Jean Reno Stellan Skarsgård's in it probably old enough that I now watch it and go oh I've forgotten about them um, it is a thriller set in France, mostly in Paris, a bit in Nice, with a group of uh, guns-for-hire mercenaries who come together to steal a briefcase. And in the process of doing so, it's a really... Um, it's quite a, a, a traditional, what we now think of as a traditional heist film, where they have to prepare for a target ambush them, steal the briefcase, get it to their paymasters, all is good. However, in the process of doing so, there are twists and turns and betrayals and double agents and all sorts. The film itself, I thought, was a, a very well-written, brilliantly acted uh, thriller. So Stellan Skarsgård is kind of in the background to begin with. His character comes in later on. He really shows some range, whereas... For me, De Niro was the sort of the charismatic lead, but was kind of overshadowed in a lot of ways by some of the other actors. Jean Reno played a really good kind of uh, second in command, a, a De Niro's lieutenant almost. And those two had a, had a really good chemistry. And, in, and almost sort of by the end of the film, it feels like a story about them as much as it, as it is about the wider plot. It also has 
a really interesting feel where it doesn't feel like a Hollywood film, even though it was made by John Frankenheimer, who did Grand Prix, who did The Manchurian Candidate, who actually has quite a long uh, list of credits, although this is one of his one of his later ones. Um, Natasha McElhone as well, who, who shows really good range because it is one of those films where I watched it a couple of times and I'd gone from never watching it to kind of watching it as as a thriller and then watching it a second time and going, oh, okay, so that character has this motivation then they sort of go off the rails like this and then there's this happens, so, but actually they were doing that for this reason. And it's, like I say, it's a very good thriller. It's not something that I'd necessarily revisit often, but as a film in its own right, it's a great way to spend a Sunday afternoon. Now, the driving sequences, because that is the bit that whenever there's a thread, particularly on Piston Head, somebody will always chirp up about Ronin and how, how great that is. I went in with really high expectations, and I think that looking at it from a sort of 20-year, 25-year gap in history you realise how much there has been. So whether it's, you know, Gone in 60 Seconds, all of the Fast and the, Fr- the, Fast and the Furious, uh, the Need for Speed, Mission Impossible, the canon of driving stunts is now immense. But kind of rolling back, what you start noticing is, first of all, the influence of Claude Lelouch cannot be underestimated. Whenever there is a low-mounted, gimbal-held camera on the front of a car driving through Paris, you're always going to think of Claude Lelouch. But what we're now so used to is these mega stunts with lots and lots and lots of cuts and the car that takes off isn't the car that lands and big, wide-open streets. And Even where you have things like, I'm thinking of the, the um, Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift, where they're going down the road and they're in traffic... And all the traffic's kind of doing the same speed. And it's quite clearly a sort of choreographed scene. They can conveniently weave in and out. Exactly. And one of them's going backwards and one of them's drifting and all that sort of stuff. However, going back and watching this several times, particularly the the driving sequences, you realise that there are people in real danger. There are people on the pavements. There are people stepping out of their cars seconds before the stunt cars come through. Obviously, they're stunt people. But the jumps are actually a bit raggy because that's what it looks like when you jump a car. There is stuff there that is incredibly precise. And it's obviously set up, but there's stuff that's that's fallen a certain way or a car's rolled a certain way. And a, the, um, I think it's the... Um, is it the M5 that just like sneaks through the side? Yeah. It's kind of thrilling. And I wish I'd seen it at the cinema because I think it would really, really work on a big screen. The other thing that is kind of interesting is that a lot of the drivers, although not the guy who plays Larry, who's driving the Audi S8, and we'll get onto the cars in a minute, were in the car while the stunt driver was driving. And what they did was they had right-hand drive cars, but the actors sat in the left-hand side seat with a steering wheel and an instrument cowl in front of them, and they acted while the person next to them was actually driving. Which sounds terrifying, and I'm pretty sure... From from my memory, I'm pretty sure you can actually see faces of real terror on Robert De Niro well, um, and some moments. This is the thing. Natasha McElhone, she is revelling in it. She's absolutely gung-ho. Whereas Robert De Niro has a face where 
imagine you really need a poo and you're like <laughs> yes and you're about a mile from the next services yes and you're like oh it's half a mile come on 300 yards that's his face for all the driving seats you can tell he's obviously an appalling passenger and he is terrified by the yeah. person next it to him it takes me out of the movie a little bit especially once you know and we apologize for listeners who may not have seen the movie or may go back and revisit it when you watch these scenes within mind that he's not driving mm. and that there's a driver next to him and actually he's having the actual poo scared out of him <laughs> it, it pulls you out of the film a little it does one of the things that really struck me i mean i rewatched the chase sequence very recently and i feel that really influenced the born car chases mm. that they shot um, not in the first movie, but the second two, done with Paul Greengrass, particularly Born Supremacy with that sort of crushing taxi chase. Mm. Um, I feel like they have... OK, there's a bit more um, shaky cam and, and more <laughs> editing maybe, but in terms of the, the natural nature of it and the sort of, like you say, where things crash because that's the way they landed when they crashed and mm. it feels like this had a bearing on movies coming after it you say it absolutely does lift from uh sit down rendezvous. rendezvous i've said it wrong again sorry apologies alan. to the yeah sorry alan but also the movie i will talk about shortly the french connection mm. it lifts from both of those takes it a step further and then i think everything that's come after that has then gone if you're doing a big car chase particularly if you're doing a car chase through a european city you look to ronin Mm. And you take, okay, then you're, you're getting sort of second generation influence. So yes, you might not go right back to the French connection, but you're pulling it indirectly through Ronin. And the, the, the other thing is that there's a lot of traffic and they're going down streets with cars down both sides. These aren't just the wide boulevards. These aren't the ones where they can have a, you know, a Mercedes with a Russian arm tracking next to the cars. There's one shot where I think it's Nice, where they've got a long shot on top of a building and cars are going down a series of, of slopes and jumping and kangarooing. And as they pull back you realise that this isn't a stage, this isn't a set, this isn't a construction. This is actually a street, as you would find it if you went right now. We also have to mention, and again, hello, friend of the show, Darren, the amount of French tat in this oh. is tremendous. Yeah. If, if you ever <laughs> it want, makes me ill thinking about it. Sorry, Darren. <laughs> if you ever want to see a film that has a Citroen XM and a, I mean, not even two CVs, but it's like there's two o fives in there, and there's there's a Renault nineteen, and it's the, the like rare of, groove Peugeots and stuff. It isn't is. There? It absolutely is. There'll be a three o six, you know, like um, a no four o six Mi sixteen was a bit later. Anyway, the, there's nothing that's too extraordinary there are a few gaffes there are a few quirks so there are things like the nitrous tuned audi s8 which i'm sorry i still find is a boring car i know some people fetishize it because it was in ronin i couldn't give a monkeys that can apparently be sort of kept up by a citroen ax with a police light on it and yeah you know, the m5 can't outrun a whatever it was there's a few of those, and there's there's the famous gaff where they blow the tire on the M5 and the wheels change, and there are uh, <laughs> there's um, the Audi S8 has an A8 interior for some bits of it if you're so inclined, but ignore all of that. So I would say actually two things. Number one, ignore the the continuity errors. 
they're nice if you kind of look at them and go, oh, look at that. You know, they're the BBS cross spokes and not the turbine wheels or whatever. Yeah. I've spotted that because I'm proper E34 BMW nerd. Doesn't the E34 look good? Yeah. Always has, always will. I, I did actually spot there's a brown Mercedes 430. Of course four, you go sorry. for the brown car. <laughs> Is it a 460 SEC? I don't know my Mercs as well as my BMs. No, and me I, It's brown, so as far as I'm concerned, it may as well be invisible. I, I love it for a couple of reasons. Number one, when it rolls on its suspension, Mercs have the weird... Um, is it a double Ackerman steering? Where basically yeah, yeah, where basically the, it looks... Oh, yeah, you know what? Yeah. It looks like the wheels go like, fall off. There's one bit, though, where the Merc is basically having to turn through about 270 degrees to get to where it wants to be pointing. And I think they've added some really awful CGI smoke to that. You, right, go back and watch it and see if you think that looks like really appalling CGI. Right. Anyway, I think it even has a brown interior as well. Oh, less with the brown. You just like it because it's brown. I'm going to, right, one day I'm going to buy you a brown car and I will pay you to drive around in it and I will just take immense joy <sighs> at your eternal pain. Yeah. Um, so, and, um, if you want to watch it as a thriller, absolutely watch it. If you want to watch just the car chases, they lift out and you can just enjoy those. The only thing that I would say is don't watch them on a phone. Watch them on the biggest screen you can get away with. Get a good quality version. Turn the volume up. It's absolutely worth it. And the other thing I would say is if I never, ever watch Ronin again, I won't be disappointed. However, I will more than likely at some point pull out those car sequences because I think that the more you watch them... And the more that modern filmmaking gets more and more absurd, particularly in like the big blockbuster stuff, I think that it will be refreshing. It'll be like going back to a car from the mid 90s or a 2003 titanium silver E46 M3 and remembering how good it once was, because that's how good those car sequences are. Very good. I have uh, I haven't watched the whole movie for a long time, but I kind of want to go back and revisit it now because I do remember it being of that kind of movie that they don't make that many of anymore. The kind of medium budget thriller with a cool action sequence or two in the middle, but the rest of it's just good character work with great character actors. And uh, I I feel like actually Ford versus Ferrari or Le Mans sixty six is a kind of a a throwback to that kind of movie. It's a mid budget thing, and and we're really lucky to have another one come along. My review for this episode is going back to 1971 and The French Connection, which we've already mentioned in passing, is a huge influence on loads of cinematic car chases. So this is directed by William Friedkin, based on a true story, sort of adapted from a book, loosely so. In a nutshell, a drug cartel in France, in Marseille, is planning to bring a massive heroin shipment into New York, like $32 million worth of heroin. Um, they've duped a celebrity into transporting the drugs into the USA, uh, and they've managed to get rid of every policeman who's keeping an eye on their operation, and then all of a sudden a couple of extraordinarily racist New York detectives stumble into their operation and kind of set the movie into motion. This is a funny one to watch with modern eyes because one of the two cops, played by Gene Hackman, is incredibly racist and I found it really odd watching stuff that obviously been written early 70s you know attitudes were different but it makes watching him where he's just casually mean to all of the criminals and incredibly racist to anyone of any kind of color made that kind of a weird watch um 
he plays a character called Popeye Doyle, Jimmy Popeye Doyle, which is a you know a great cop name. Um, I think Popeye is a nickname, and I think that comes from the actual character this is based on, who is a real cop. Uh, Roy Scheider, him off of Jaws, uh, plays his partner, and he he's a Roy Scheider type type character. He you see very little to suggest that he isn't just going to go and reprise this in a slightly tweaked form for Steven Spielberg in five years' time. Um, he's good and and so on, but this movie belongs to Hackman. Hackman absolutely, even though, like I say, he has some questionable character choices when viewed through modern eyes, he's dynamite in this. He He's practically vibrating off the screen with energy and he plays this kind of absolutely obsessed cop who stumbles onto this thing and just gets deeper and deeper digging into finding out how these drugs are coming in and and leaves a trail of wreckage both human and machine in his wake as he tries to catch um, a sort of very suave sophisticated French uh, drug smuggling bad guy and I remember watching it thinking there's a good degree of this character dynamic between the two of them in Heat. Not necessarily if you've seen Heat, you'll know that there's respect between Robert De Niro's character and Al Pacino's character, between the, the, the thief and the policeman that's pursuing him. That is absolutely not the case here. But in terms of the character traits of the thief being smooth and sophisticated and suave and everything's planned and going smoothly and the cop chasing him being very reactive and kind of wired and like I say vibrating off the screen that really struck me as a as a as a big parallel the reason the french connection is revealed is because it's kind of a it's a it's a really taut 70s thriller that you don't get anymore i think even ronin isn't quite as as sort of grim and gritty and this is new york in the early 70s it's a pretty rough looking place um, everything's dirty. There's all sorts of you know, sort of broken down areas of it, and it really has a sense of period. The film grain, even on a like a high def download from iTunes, it's so grainy. They've no, there doesn't appear to be a like a re-released or a remastered version that is, you know, all cleaned up and sanitized. It's it's probably all the better for it. But it's a it's a funny watch when you're watching it with modern eyes. Like I say, to go, oh, well, this is kind of all oldie worldy you know the 20th century fox thing is in black and white at the start the credits are all at the front of the movie it's a real vintage feeling thing but the reason everyone cites the french connection is because there is a car chase two-thirds of the way through the movie an assassin from this french group of drug smugglers attempts to kill hackman's character popeye and escapes on a subway train and popeye chases him down in a brown buick le mans Oh, it's it's wheels within wheels today. So it's not technically a car chase to be super pedantry. It's a car stroke train chase. Part of the appeal of this is it's it's super visceral. Like you say, there's a good deal of that Claude Lelouch feel because there's a camera rig bolted to the bumper of the car. There's loads of imminent near misses and swerving around cars. Well, so the train's going over the top and uh, um, on the, the elevated subway train above and he's driving the car underneath the tracks looking up to see the train to try and keep up with it so that he can catch this, this assassin. And he's weaving in and out of traffic. Is a moment where he smashes into another car and the story goes that that was actually uh, an unsuspecting driver who had stumbled into the film set and they left it in because it looked real and it does it's kind of a it's it's, it's a it's one of those 
an accident that you would see on police camera action where the it kind of sideswipes where clearly the driver turns at the last minute and the stunt driver turns at the last minute so they smash sides rather than the kind of t-boning that you often see in stunts because it, it makes more mess um, and he keeps driving and he crashes into a wall and he keeps driving so the car just gets progressively more beaten up and there's more of those kind of low rig cam Oh, no, rig cam's not the word, but you know, the kind of the, the camera strapped to the front of the car. Mm. And it seems to get faster and faster. So it starts off and it's quite pedestrian and slow and it gets faster and faster and he's weaving in and out of the traffic. There's loads of stories around how this was done. The stunt driver is a guy called Bill Hickman, who was the stunt driver on Bullet. Ah. Another movie we should probably cover. Uh, and another one that's often cited as best cinema car chase in, in, you know, in all of history. He did all the driving and it's said by the director, William Friedkin, did all the filming from inside the car. The reason being that all the rest of the crew were married and had families and he was single. Oh, wow. That gives you a clue to the level of risk. Some of this stuff they didn't have permits for. There's tales of uh, New York off-duty cops helping them to close streets and take control of traffic, even though they really shouldn't. So they maybe had permission to shoot for five blocks, but they shot past that five-block thing. There's tales of freaking the director needling Hickman and saying, you know, it's not fast enough, you're not good enough, to the point where the stunt driver gets really annoyed and says, you want fast? Get in the car, I'll show you, and then proceeds to drive at 90 miles an hour through the streets, um, you know, narrowly missing things weaving in and out of traffic and there, you know, there are real people on the sidewalk i don't know how much of this is kind of legend built on myth built on tall tales but there is a degree of danger in every one of those shots a lot like ronin if you come to this having watched hobbs versus shaw or the um, need for speed or any of these movies that have astonishing camera equipment available to them like russian arms and gopros and all these kind of modern things that let you get closer to the action and allow you to drive faster and and give more visceral screen thrills this might seem a little staid and a little i don't know not not as not as exciting but you kind of go back and watch it again and you'll go okay they had nothing to do they just had a car and they drove it really fast through traffic and put lots of people in extreme danger and that kind of that kind of sizzles off the screen it doesn't hold up to the kind of technical level that you might expect but the danger kind of lifts it out of the sort of anodyne stuff you might see in a need for speed where you've got long tracking shots but there's no feel of real danger whereas this absolutely feels like at any moment he could crash and the car just be a complete write-off and the driver could be killed no crumple zones in these things there's definitely no diff in this Buick it's it's you know spinning the inside wheel as it's going around corners it understeers it oversteers it rolls it's it's of a period but it is exciting one thing I did notice is that there's barely any score through the whole movie to kind of give you that mood I think had this been made in modern times there'd be driving propulsive score and and kind of pushing onwards and raising your pulse in that way and the only way they can do that in this is through really taut editing and for the time very good sound effects and foley work some of it is a little over the top the sort of they can never get tire screech to loop right and sound organic it always sounds like it's been added on afterwards like we talked about in in the claude Lelouch movie 
but is as a chunk in the movie that kind of raises the pulse as it races towards the end as he's chasing after this assassin it really really works and you can see its influence on Ronin and on you know other car chases that followed it it's seminal in that sense I don't know that I would recommend re-watching the movie if you've seen it and I'm not sure I'd even recommend going back and revisiting the whole thing it is an astonishingly grim noir movie it's not set at night and dark neon noir kind of thing but it has a very grim outlook the characters are quite unsympathetic hard to root for uh, and and it has a, a quite a downbeat climax Mm. to the to the movie without going into any spoilers and so like with Ronin you could go and find the car chase online and watch it and see where cinema car chases kind of started between that and Bullet this appears on loads of people's greatest thrillers and certainly greatest car movies I'm going to be a little controversial and say I know I've seen it a couple of times I'm not going to watch it again ever it's a box ticked and it's a, you know, I have never seen this movie. I'll go and watch it and explain um, what it's about and, and, and why people like it. Gene Hackman is exceptional and he won awards for this. Uh, I think this this garnered five Oscars in the end, including Best Actor, I think. Wow. And there are great performances and sort of great character actors and, and you know... It belongs to Hackman. There was an ill-advised and nowhere near as good sequel, I am told, um, with Hackman starring again. I have not watched that. I don't plan to watch it. Um, Directed by? I don't know. John Frankenheimer. Oh, really? So for, uh, there's a good link. Oh, we should have done these the other way around in the end. <laughs> Check it out. If, it's, if you've never seen it, it's worth watching, but I would probably recommend if you've seen it and you know the car chase, you don't need to watch it again. It's a very... It's a very difficult watch i'd say mm, interesting I, I i have this on my shelf i will admit and it's been there for a long long time i will make a point of, of digging it out before our next recording and on a and rainy you know afternoon if it's a, you, need, you need the right kind of weather you know rainy afternoon and and you need to be in the right mood i will say and I, like i think i mentioned this earlier on there is a moment halfway through the car chase where he decides he needs to go a bit faster and what do you do when you need to go a bit faster <laughs> you mash your foot to the floor Excellent. This may be the actual. I, I can't remember if there's one in Bullet, but this might be the seminal moment of the mash the throttle to the stop kind of uh, <laughs> shot. And I watched it and went, I'd forgotten that was there. That's hilarious. They're all in it. Even the most lauded of car movies has that moment. Excellent, excellent. Well, now let's shift gear and press that uh, throttle to the stop as we revisit our semi-regular feature. What's Henry Catchpole done this week? And you texted me rather excitedly with the new film from Carfection of Henry Catchpole doing a road trip in the Audi, the new Audi RS6. And I've got to say, any time there's a Henry Catchpole video at the moment, it's a pretty good hallmark of quality. They're all bangers. I think I said to you, this might be the best thing he and the Carfection team have done this year, and they've done some pretty corking things this year. I think his uh, Alpine A110S film was probably my previous highlight of his recent output with Carfection. And mm. credit has to be said, it's not just Henry doing these things. He has a really great team of cinematographers and editors who may actually be the same person but there's a really <laughs> great creative team at Carfection but there's something about the way Henry delivers these pieces to camera and his thoughts about the car that really 
elevate it in a world of identikit car reviewers. Mm. His are always something different. There's always some new angle on how to review a car. I think the with both the Alpine and with this, it's not about the car solely. It's about the trip to do the thing that ties in with that that is this thing. There's a story. There's a storyline yeah. going through it. Even this one, I, the, thing I, the thing I like about this one is there's a degree of whimsy to it. Mm. You know, the, the, there's, a, there's a moment where they strap a camera to a trolley going through a Walmart. There's, <laughs> there's a moment where he gets out of the back of the, the RS6 after supposedly sleeping in it, looking quite bleary-eyed and not quite with it. That I just think... It's a joy to watch. I'm never going to be in the market for a brand new RS6. They cost no. astonishing amounts of money and they depreciate at a seemingly also astonishing rate. <laughs> but I love seeing someone review one in such an original manner and it makes mm. me go, yeah, if I was a man looking to do business somewhere in Slough <laughs> and I needed to get somewhere else to do some more business with my fancy watch, then, yeah, and I might... a zesty drink. Yes, I would have a can of zesty drink in, in the, in the centre console. You know, an Audi RS6 would be a great choice. It would. And it sounds really ridiculous. The bit where um, he, he... Spoiler alert. Well, kind of. Where he flips down the um, the sun visor and a Mr. Goodbar falls into his lap and he just goes, you wouldn't get that on a European car. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's really... This feels like someone... They had an idea in the pub and... <laughs> just got sillier and sillier and then found an excuse to make it yes it's a joy to watch i do think it's the the most entertaining the 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 most interesting film they've done for a while and they've done a mm. lot of really good content and i seem to oh, think yeah. you know the the view count on this is is borne out by how much people have liked it i think it's 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 well up into the hundreds of thousands which is always encouraging for this because it means they get a chance to do more of these kinds of things so definitely check that out definitely and for my youtube pick aside from what henry catchfall's done my focus so much has been on Le Mans and on GT40s. When I think of GT40s, I think of one clip, and it's not Ken Miles, it's Kenny Brack in the wet at Goodwood, driving the most unhelpful car I've ever seen anyone drive. Better than um, Fascination with the, the Roof CTR, better than a lot of the drifting videos, because it's all on board and the the whole clip is just an onboard gopro or something of of this gt40 no abs no traction control being driven in the wet by a man with the fastest hands and you can see him understeering and then oversteering and then understeering and then oversteering and fighting this car the whole way around it's we talked about car scenes in all of this you kind of watch it even on just on youtube or on your phone and you're just like you can kind of feel yourself tensing because you think he's going to have an enormous crash any second. It's Over- riveting. It is absolutely riveting. Is was this? This was Quali, wasn't it? In Goodwood. Oh, I, I don't know. I think know. it's either Quali or practice. He's li- a lot like Stefan Rosa in the roof. He's bullying the car around. There is not a moment where he is not absolutely on top of it and mastering it. It's like someone trying to train a recalcitrant horse. Um, <laughs> yes. It is, it's being bullied around the circuit. But the thing is, it's in filthy conditions. Goodwood is a really, really difficult circuit to drive in 
anything other than bone dry conditions is exceptionally punishing. There is no margin for error, not quite as little as there is at some places of the Nurburgring, but not far off. Mm. Um, There's a lot of wet grass if it's raining as well. Yeah, touch the grass and you're off and you're in the barriers. And given the nature of the cars they're driving often here, it's going to be a very big, very expensive accident. Mm. And he is, he's just bossing it. He's thumping it around that circuit and the car wants to kill him at every single step every millimeter of throttle he he puts down the car's like i'll have you i'll have you off (laughs) and every time he catches it with ease and like i say it's just he's bullying it around the circuit and it is riveting to watch i can't remember how long the clip is but it is quite possibly the best piece of onboard i have seen since colin mcrae in 2001 at the british rally doing the same thing with his Focus WRC. There's a stage, he and Nicky Grist woke up early and this is before they unfortunately crashed out. They decided in the first stage they would go maximum attack, to borrow a rallying phrase from Marco Ellen. They would go (laughs) 10 tenths and then some to try and catch the rest of the field napping. And McRae's doing the same thing with his Focus. It's not quite as exciting because the Focus has a dull four part with a turbo on it rather than the glorious V8 in the back. But McRae's doing the same (laughs) thing. He is forcing the car to to do what he wants and the car doesn't want to do it. It wants to hit the nearest tree and fold itself into a tiny little piece. Um, and this was, was, was this that is a stage where, the, where there were logs down the side of the stage as well. They're like they're stacks yes, of yes, logs. it's that one. It's the one where he appears to set it up for a corner about five hundred meters before the corner, <laughs> and it's it's not even a Scandinavian flick. It's like a Scandinavian three flicks. And I've watched that clip three or four times, figuring how does he do it, and he just manages to get the pendulum effect so the car just slides through, and it's it's glorious to watch. This feels like that to me. It's the same mm. car and what well, driver and car meshing as one and and it's beautiful to watch so yeah if you haven't seen this clip and you probably have but if you haven't seen it just type kenny brack goodwood and you will get it and you will watch it in disbelief or check out the link in the show notes (laughs) very good um my piece was going to be a film from Gerardo and Co about uh, the aforementioned Nicky Grist driving one of Colin McRae's old impressors. We do like old impressors on this show. Um, oh, yes. And he brings up uh, Colin McRae's brother, Alistair, his dad, Jimmy, and then another McRae. Couldn't work out whether cousin nephew. or son. I wasn't, yeah, nephew, maybe um, Max McRae. Uh, and they all drive it, and and it's it's brilliant, and it's got flat fours going wah 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 wah, and I love it. <laughs> but Sky F1 did a really long for them feature on Martin Brundle and his son Alex Brundle racing a Aston Martin Vantage at the VLN race at the Nordschleife, and. It's 28 minutes long, which is way longer than most of Sky F1's pieces run, and it's mm. a really really in-depth look at you know a 60 60 year old he's 60 now he is, yeah, yeah this, this was his 60th birthday present to get himself a permit to race at the Nordschleife and he says I have spent his you know he spent his whole life racing at Silverstone at Monza at Spa and he reveres these circuits and he never once raced at the Nordschleife he very nearly did in the early 80s with sports cars but never actually did and so this is new ground for him his son Alex is a very successful very talented sports car racer who won his class with Aston Martin at the uh, Nürburgring 24 hours in June yep and so he's sharing a car with his dad 
Uh, I think what well, must have been the last round of the VLN series. Uh, no, it was earlier in the season. It wasn't VLN nine. It was uh, I, uh, I want to say seven. Okay, Maybe. so one of, latter part of the the VLN series, anyway, and so it takes you through the process of of Martin Brundle going through and getting his permit mm. in the old Vantage, the old Kermit, which I, I love that they nicknamed Kermit the Permit. <laughs> it's not the green Kermit that we all know and love from yes. from Dicky racing it back in the day, but it's still it's that it's that great old vantage shape that i love so much and it goes through him you know having his instructor taking him through him him doing his first sessions out him doing quali struggling with the fact that there's other cars on track trying to work his way around um you know cars spinning in front of him there's a wonderful moment where he's got out the car after a session and he's talking about seeing cars spinning in front of him and he said that i'm i'm a moment's overconfidence away from that being me mm. and it's a real moment of honesty uh from let's face it, a world champion sports car driver who has driven more Formula One cars than anyone else in history, an astonishing broadcaster and a real driving talent. And for him to come out with, with something as honest as that was was really eye-opening to watch. And then they get into the, the Vantage... Is it GT3 car? It is the GT3 it's car, GT4. isn't it? Sorry, GT4 car. Then they get into the Vantage GT3, GT4 car uh, and he's driving with his son Alex and he acknowledges that this is a jolly for him. He's he's the newbie, he's the novice. And his son Alex knows the Nordschleife far better, knows this kind of car far better and is the, the, the hot shoe of the, of the pairing. Uh, and so he puts his son in for the start because he's very clearly like, I want nothing to do with that. All that car, <laughs> all that mayhem, I want nothing to do with that whatsoever. It's a really great watch. Mm. And like I say, it really benefits from being a, a full-length feature, effectively. It's longer mm. than a lot of YouTube clips. And I wish Sky would do more stuff like this. They should... I mean, my wife watched this with me and she said, doesn't his son sound just like him? Doesn't look anything like him, but he sounds oh. like a slightly higher-pitched version of, of Martin Brundle. He's clearly a chip off the old block, incredibly talented, incredibly articulate. And you can see in the last scenes when they're talking about how, how they fared in the race that racing together really does mean a lot to them. They've done it before at Le Mans, but it's clear that they both had a great time doing this. And I have a feeling it won't be the last time they are seen in an Aston Martin at the Nordschleife. Definitely not. And it's worth saying as well that racing on the Nordschleife does come with some idiosyncrasies. I'm not even going to put you on the spot by asking you what VLN stands for because... Oh God, no, I I can't do that. I can't remember either. (laughs) But they explain it all really well. There's a lot of archive footage because all of the races are are, are races are broadcast in, in Germany. They've got Radio Le Mans coverage kind of filling the exposition bits. So if you know nothing about the Nordschleife, if you know nothing about racing, it's absolutely a great standalone film. And that's it for this episode. If you think we've got it right or got it wrong, share your thoughts and opinions with us on Twitter at AutoMoviePod, on our AutoMoviePodcast Facebook page, or email us at comments at AutoMoviePodcast.com. We're going to go and buy some E34 M5s now and drive them through a town incredibly quickly. We'll see you next episode. <laughs>